Welcome to episode 65 of the J Bunny's Music Hub podcast. I'm your host, J Bunny. Well, everybody, it has been a long fucking time. Last episode we put out was back in July, and I do want to apologize for the unplanned hiatus here. Uh, things got really goddamn busy. Bought a house, and, and that is very time-consuming, all of the shit that goes into that. But we finally got in and got settled, and things have calmed down enough. And I wanted to make sure that we didn't end 2021 without a new episode since July. So we're back. Today, joining me on the show is Corey Pierce, drummer for the band Disciples of Verity, and formerly of the band God Forbid. I touched base with Corey back in July, actually, uh, when I was doing some episodes at Dingbats. Uh, Corey is uh, involved with with Dingbats uh, currently, uh, and so I asked him, hey man, would you be interested in being on the show? He gave me his email address and reached out, and here we are. We talk a lot about, God forbid, being in the, in the metal press lately regarding possible talks of a reunion. We talk about how God forbid got together, and we also talk about his current band Disciples of Verity and some other projects that his name has been attached to. I really think that you guys are going to enjoy the conversation. Uh, without further ado, here's Corey. All right, what's up, everybody? It is Jay Bunny. I am at Dingo's Den across the street from Dingbats, which you have heard me uh, interview people at many times. I'm sitting here today with Corey Pierce, former Ooh. drummer from God Forbid and currently in Disciples of Verity. How are you doing today? Doing pretty good, man. Having a little cider since it's <laughs> it's not whiskey o'clock yet, so I gotta keep that in check. All right, fair enough. Fair but, enough. Uh, a little cider is good, you know. Get the get things going a little bit. Lunchtime. There you I'm go. starting to get hungry too. Right now. Yeah, I stopped and grabbed some McDonald's on the way. Oh, I won't do it. <laughs> I, I haven't eaten this like every once in a while for some reason. I'll get like a like a Whopper craving or something like any one of those things. I'll get like that craving. And it's 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 like few and far apart. Like it'll be years. Yeah. You know, every couple of years it'll be like, all right, fuck it, I'll do it. You know. <laughs> and then like I eat it, it kind of tastes good going down, and then afterwards I always regret it, and I feel like shit, and I'm like, oh, why did I do that? Right, right. You know, like I then I feel tired and lethargic. I'm like, oh, I should have never done that. Yeah. yeah. But I, uh, I probably shouldn't either. But my it's you know. terrible. It's just like especially like I cook a lot, so it's common. Right. Yeah. No. I, you know when I was doing the prep for for this, and I was just googling you and seeing all the kind of shit that I, I found a, an article and there was i don't think the video exists anymore but there was a video that you did oh yeah with, with, I did and you're making show. making a burger it's and... still out there it's still on youtube <laughs> yeah i did a tv show in chicago and it was a guy that basically it was like a cooking show but he had all these different dudes from bands yeah come on a cooking show i did one of the first episodes he called me up like when the show first basically first got started and he asked me to do it. i was like sure we were in chicago and you know, we're on the on the road or whatever, and uh, you know, especially when you're headlining, there's not that much to do during the day anyway. You're sitting around waiting, right? And they just end up. He's like, "Oh, you know, why don't you come down? We'll do the interview. Just pick something." So, you know, I said him in whatever. It was like a cheese stuffed burger, or right? Something. Yep, yep, yep. And um, basically, I I went down there and showed him head to me, but it was it was fun. You know, it was, it was a good time, and it's like it was funny to me because I made all these burgers, whatever. And grill them up, and like you're looking at the people in the uh, you know working on a TV show, and none of them are using napkins; they're just greasy. And I was like, "See, See that, you know, you're wiping your face. That's how I know I got you. <laughs> That's how I know my shit's good." 
You don't even care about how fucked up you look. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, that came up because I guess that that gotten shared to you know gotten posted on Blabbermouth, and so I was searching Blabbermouth. Yeah, it went, like, it went <laughs> around quite a bit. I was like, it was actually pretty weird. That uh, then I got asked to do a couple more things, some cookbooks and shit to give recipes and some some cookbooks and things. It was actually you know, and it just kind of escalated on certain levels from there. Then I did the Brotherhood of Barbecue page on Facebook, and that kind of like. That was just supposed to be for fun, for yeah. me and like a couple friends and shit. We were just bullshitting and talking shit about barbecue on this page, and then like it just started to, you know, get. Then all of a sudden, it's like a couple thousand people were on the page. All of a sudden, I was like, "Wow, how <laughs> fuck did that just?" <laughs> <laughs> kind of just Mister Magooed my way into that situation. But it's it's. Once you start back to the fast food thing, though, once you start cooking, though, like you cook so much and then you taste how bad, like the difference is. Like, yeah. When you eat, you know, like you're buying all your stuff and you, especially, you, you know, it's, you want to take a little time to buy or you know, I don't buy organic everything. I'm like not that crazy, but I like to get some stuff organic, but I know that people think like that's their entire life. Like, yeah, yeah. Everything's got to be certain, you know, organic this and fucking no this and no that. I'm not that crazy with it all the time. I do like to get like, I know a lot of people that have farms and grow vegetables. Like, I got a friend that does, like, um, an organic food co-op. So, it's like he's on one farm. There's, like, a community of these people. Yeah. Um, you know, some people have, like, animals, like lambs and cows or whatever the fuck. And then certain people make, like, salsas. And then people make, grow, like, he grows a bunch of vegetables. And they do this thing, like, every week indoors where they go in and they set up all the things. And you can go get, like, anything fresh, honey, fucking sauce, whatever you want. So... I would just hit him up and be like, listen, man, I'm going to swing by your house and pick up a bunch of vegetables and shit like that. But other than that, it's like, you know, I'm not, like, at the supermarket, like, checking labels. Like, is this the fucking grown and only Green Vance Wisconsin <laughs> shit? Like, you know, I'm not, I'm not that crazy with it. But you could definitely tell the difference when you're, like, eating, like, yeah. you're cooking for yourself all the time. And you have that kind of, like, sort of... Um, mental gratification of knowing who's touching your food yeah yeah yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's not some dude you know sitting in the back of mcdonald's you know picking his nose and scratching his ass <laughs> flipping your burgers you know that's what's going right, on right right well it's, it was annoying too not to get too far off on this subject but like so i normally if i go to mcdonald's because they do the breakfast all day mm. i'll get like a mcgriddle or a mcmuffin <laughs> And like, you fuck with that McGriddle. See, that's that is that is one of the worst sandwiches ever. Worst and best, I guess you could say. <laughs> the concept of it obviously is amazing. Who doesn't want to eat fucking everything on a breakfast sandwich on, that's made of a pancake <laughs> right. filled with syrup and butter? <laughs> but like, or Jesus Christ! Like, <laughs> well, well, so I guess that normally, you know, I'm not usually up this early. So normally, mm. I'll go there in the afternoon, and they'll have to make it fresh. Mm. I got it today, and they gave it to me right away. I was like, that's weird. Doesn't usually it ain't usually this quick. Usually, they tell me to go park in a parking spot and wait i was like fuck it's cold it's left over from breakfast an hour ago <laughs> yeah you're just at that point that used to be like a big thing in movies they used to reference it all the time when mcdonald's left breakfast and they'd use you know some fast food place what do you mean breakfast is over they actually uh that movie falling down with michael douglas yes he actually goes in there for breakfast remember he goes i want a womlet i want a womlet and they're like you just Miss Breakfast is over at fucking 11 o'clock. He looks at his watch and looks at the clock. It's like a fucking 11.02. He's like, get the hell out of here, you know. But we've all been through that situation. Yeah, so. yeah. I used to love McDonald's breakfast, man. Eat all that shit. <laughs> Sausage McMuffins, pancakes. I used to love McDonald's breakfast. But I think when you're younger, too, it's like, I don't know. We were, I was talking to a friend of mine about this. When you're a kid and you first eat all that kind of crap, 
you're just so excited because it's like new. Yeah, and, yeah. And it tastes to you know to new when you're a kid. It tastes great. You're like, man, chicken McDonald's is like the shit. Yeah, yeah. Then you get older and you've had like real chicken or real. You go to like a place that has like even if you you know it's just chicken tenders. You go to like a decent pub. Yeah. Where it's like, oh, this is real chicken. And it's got like a good crust and whatever. You're like, I do not want a fucking chicken nugget. <laughs> Please shoot me in the face before I eat another chicken nugget. <laughs> you know, like you're looking at kids like. Mm. You just don't know. <laughs> but uh, oh, man. anyway. <laughs> well, so that was fantastic. <laughs> Getting to the music. I, I first beca- became aware of you around 2000. We're going to talk about music? Well, yes. <laughs> okay. First became aware of you in 2004 when I saw God Forbid on OzFest. Uh, you guys, from that point onward, were always a staple of the New Jersey metal scene for me. And I was just wondering if you could tell me how, because... I was kind of only aware of you guys from that point on. Can you kind of tell me how the band got together and, and you know, your guys, you know, coming together, formation, and getting to that point? I mean, there was a lot that happened before that point. It was kind of like, honestly, I'm sure it's pretty much like most bands, you know, friends of friends. Myself, John, and Byron went to school together, and we were all doing different things or jamming together sometimes, but, you know, up through high school. And then, obviously, by the time all this shit happened, we were in our 20s. Doc and Dallas were still very young. They, I think when I met Doc, he was only 15. I think Dallas was 16 when we first started playing together, and they were friends of our original singer. So Byron used to actually play bass in the band originally. Okay. When we weren't called God Forbid, we had another name before that. And um, no, I'm not going to say it. Because <laughs> it's something that we hate to talk about. Because <laughs> right, no it's so embarrassing. <laughs> so, you know, it was, it was kind of friends of friends, and then the original singer that was in the band before Byron started singing, he was still playing bass, his cousin was actually friends with Doc and Dallas. Like, they were big into comic books and art and shit, and so they kind of knew each other from that. And he was always telling, oh, you got to jam with these, these kids, like a Doc and Dallas, and I guess he was telling them the same thing. You know, time goes by, whatever, it finally eventually ends up happening. But it wasn't anything, you know, remotely serious in the, in the initial stages. Like, they barely knew anything about anything. They were just still, like, learning how to play Metallica covers and stuff. Like, right. Stuff like that, and it was just a weird, sort of very awkward moment, you know, like in a room, like, hey, you want to jam this Metallica cover, kind of, you know, sort of, like, <laughs> it was weird. But it developed quickly in that we all kind of spent a lot of time just playing, and then everybody was kind of like, you know, at least a little bit energized to kind of just keep jamming all the time and then Dallas at the time was a big proponent because he was just so high energy all the time like he would call me up in the middle of the night to play me riffs over the phone that I could not hear (laughs) (laughs) you know he'd be like yo man check out this riff and put the phone next to the fucking amp or whatever and like it just sounds like (sighs) all right man I'll check you out tomorrow click you know, like, all right, you know. And at first I was like, yo, this motherfucker is so crazy. But you just kind of like, all right. But at the same time, you're like, I appreciate the fact that he's excited about it, whatever. But I mean, when we first started playing shows and doing stuff like actually playing shows, there really wasn't any metal shows per se around here. Like, the metal scene had kind of, like, died out. Yeah. I mean, you had metal shows at the Berkshire, but there was no, like, it's not like now where you could go play, like, a a dingbats or something like that, and there was, like, metal shows that you could play in, like, you know, 150-cat rooms or 100-cat rooms or 200-cat rooms. Yeah. It wasn't, like, 
a bunch of people throwing shows for young metal bands and shit. It was mostly hardcore shows yeah. pretty much everywhere. And I also think like hardcore was kind of like at the time or that version of hardcore was kind of like more booming, you know, coming out of um, what examples could I give here? Kind of because like Madball was starting to get bigger that point and that was kind of blowing up you know agnostic front was already blown up but they were starting to get more like sou kind of yeah play and shit like that so you know you have people who are into metal kind of like crossing over into it a little bit you're coming kind of off the rebounds of kind of like dri and shit like that sort of dripping that kind of like more metallic sound into metal you have bands like marauder who are like hardcore bands that a very heavy sort of metal more metalish sound. Yeah. And there's there's a ton, to be honest, from uh, New York and New Jersey. But then you also had young bands that were coming out, like us, like Dillinger, like Candiria, even E-Town, where it was kind of like, they're hardcore, in the hardcore scene, but they weren't, had all these elements that were definitely not average hardcore band elements. Right, right. right. It was way different, and it was kind of starting to bridge things. So that's kind of what was going on. And then occasionally, we would be able to get on the random metal show at, let's say, like, Obsessions. Yeah, yeah. Sell, like, tickets. I think we sold tickets one time, and it turned out to be, like, the... Oh, I remember exactly I what heard... Was. I was listening to Doc yeah, tell this. I was this listening to one of his old... Seven Dust yep, yep. This was so fucking annoying. But so... You know, we went to sell tickets for this show, whatever. And then I don't remember the details of what happened other than the fact that we ended up playing After Seven Dust, which was the fucking booty cheese. Okay? Like, that shit was so lame. And it was like, all right, after that, we were like, fuck selling tickets ever again. We're never doing this shit. Yeah, yeah. Because it doesn't matter. Like, you guys, like, it was at that point, too, I feel like, where you still kind of had the old guard holding on to the remnants of clubs and metal. Like, I feel like, the, you know, there was a certain way that promoters and, and, and clubs looked at young bands like they just shit on them. Yeah. Just to shit on them because that's how things were supposed to go. You know, like you just, they felt like that's how things were, just went. And it was less about community. People were like, you just shit on younger bands because why not? Fuck them. You know, there'd be <laughs> another one just like them 10 minutes away, you know, so... I feel like now there's some of that left here or there, and even without the in, and through the industry from agents and you know people in the industry, there's a little bit of that mentality left where they're just shitting on people because they feel like they can. Right, right. Like they're I'm up here and you're down here, so I'll talk to you any way the fuck I please and treat you however I feel like it, which I think is real fucked up. But in some cases, there's not much you can do about it. In some cases, it's people just being delusional, and they don't realize that because of that thinking, their time has already passed. They just don't realize that they've already fucked themselves in life. But that's another road altogether. So we kind of went through that phase, and we were doing a lot of hardcore shows. And then it, it was kind of weird because we weren't really drawing anybody. And then we got asked to do this show underneath the hotel New Brunswick as some kind of hotel. It's like right in the middle of New Brunswick by the, the fountain right in the middle of the center of the city there. And it was with VOD and a bunch of bands, some other bands that were local around here, Faint 13, some other bands that were local. And it was, at that point, definitely was the biggest show we had ever played, but it wasn't. It was before John was in the band, Byron had just started doing vocals and we still had Lisa playing bass in the band at the time. But it was significant in that it was kind of the proponent to the, the next level of shows we started to do. From, like, doing the Court Tavern and being nobody there, but let's say, like, you know, Doc and Dallas' dad 
with like two other friends that we had. Right. Um, so basically nobody. <laughs> <laughs> and then there was actually people. And then all of a sudden it was like, all right, we're doing some shows at Middlesex County College. You know, those are really, those shows I think helped us in many ways the most because it kind of gave us the energy to see what it's like to play in front of people and start putting on a better live show. You know what I mean? Kind of like giving it your all and putting everything into everything, that you, every song that you play, because there was actually people there to react to it. Right. So, right. <laughs> so that always helps. And I mean, basically because of the, doing those shows and the people we met in that circle, that's how we ended up, you know, obviously signing to Nine Volt, and that was the catalyst of us getting signed to Century Media, which all happened in a pretty short period of time, within a couple of years. Right, right. So it all, once it was like, once one thing clicked, it was like boom, 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 and then so you know we're on the we were on the road. Yeah, we did a couple small things before we got signed. We did some stuff with like Diecast way back in the day. You know, we were making like a hundred bucks a show or some some nonsense like that. <laughs> but you know, um, right after that, obviously, then we wrote Determination and we toured on that for like two and a half years, and we did a lot of a lot of great tours on that, which obviously helps like one of the first tours was um nevermore opeth us and angel dust we did cradle of filth you know which was insane obviously it was every show was sold out and it was like you know that was the first time playing like huge places you know it was like all right now we're playing in front of three thousand people you know first time i ever went to starland was seeing cradle of filth it was interesting they were all they were all cool though they treated us really well and it was just like completely not what we anticipated being on that tour i know it not for, definitely not for me because i i was not like a at the time i barely knew anything about cradle of filth and i was like what is this shit gonna be like so i checked you know it's like i'm checking out cds and stuff before we before we went on tour with them and i was like man this shit is fucking crazy <laughs> what are these dudes gonna be like <laughs> you know but um I feel like the people that come to see Cradle of Filth are actually crazier than the people in the band. Right, right, right. For sure. For sure. <laughs> but, you know, by that point, like I said, we toured for like two and a half years on, on Determination. So you got to figure. At that point, that was our second full length. And we had already kind of like gone through Rejected Sickness. There was no touring on that. It was still just a local nine volt thing. But it was, it sold, you know, a few thousand copies, which was, you know, to be from for us it was like incredible like yeah yeah it's like oh my god this is crazy as hell like why do why do this many people even care <laughs> <laughs> and you know there's all the little things that were happening um they're starting to get more interest and doing new jersey metal fest yeah, and all different kinds of things like that started going on yeah to t- kind of tie into that sort of era not to not to interrupt but we have a, we have a mutual friend in tom mcnamara oh yeah and so i reached out to t-mac last night i was like so i'm gonna be talking to Corey. Like what should what should I ask Corey about? And the two things that he had said was to ask you about coming up and playing shows at the Birch Hill and the Melody with bands like Hatebreed mm. and For the Love of. And he also yeah. wanted me to ask you about stories about you guys uh, in your rehearsal space at yes, Big Noise. Big Noise. Oh yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I've known Tommy Mack a long time. I actually used to live kind of like around the corner. My brother lived in Kendall Park and lives basically in that whole area like him and uh, a mutual friend of ours paul used to live like literally like a couple blocks away <laughs> but um big noise was this rehearsal studio and the guy that owned it his name was mitch and then he had a guy working in there named paul hopkinson paul hopkinson actually did our first website like he was the first big guy that was really on our side behind the band you know okay. what i mean like doing stuff 
for us. Him and actually Mitch, I mean, there was tons of times we couldn't afford rehearsal time and Mitch would like let us like drag out the dead or work it out in some way, you know, yeah. like I used to go there and like change drum heads or whatever, you know, shit that he needed us to do, stuff like that. And um, Big Noise was just a fucking, it was like a crazy place. It was like uh, one of those places that it's, it wasn't a really super nice looking studio, first of all. <laughs> um, he had a few rooms and he had like video games like you could play pinball and shit, but he didn't care what you did in the room. You smoke as much weed in there. We basically had small shows at our rehearsals at one point because there'd be like 15 people in our rehearsal room while we were playing. <laughs> smoke a weed and drink a beer. You know, it was, <laughs> you know, it was just a free for all. But they, you know, that's where we also heard for the love of. They were rehearsing for a show and they were playing like two doors down, which was one of the major things that I think changed a lot of how we thought about playing. Because you know they were so tight and they had their shit together, and we were like, "Damn, we need to get, <laughs> we need to get our shit together." Seeing them and then bands like Candiria, like I said, who was just that was just a whole another level. And that's when we started realizing, like, okay, we need to rehearse more. You know, there's things that we need to do from just being in those places. And then the Birch Hill was like a whole other thing. Like uh, one of the first shows we did, we, we got to open a show for Morbid Angel at the Birch Hill. I remember that show specifically because I think Beaker or Byron, one of them two motherfuckers, both of those motherfuckers might have got kicked out of the show. <laughs> somehow like but that was early on after it got to a point where they actually loved us there so much they just let it let us get away with anything which was ridiculous and starland was pretty much the same way they'll tell you stories now yeah about god forbid plays fucking starland like yo man the whole fucking place smells like weed you know we'd have like 150 people like people all in our dressing room down the hall down the steps into the kitchen into the, they're like this is what is going on here but, you know. I've ever seen you guys play, not to jump ahead, I've ever seen you guys play there with El Nino at one point. And I think that it was, I don't know if it was your last show on the tour or their last, it was like, so one band was leaving the tour. Mm-hmm. And so and I so I don't remember all of the specifics except for that. At some point, somebody came out during somebody else's set and just started putting Kool-Aid and watermelons all over the stage. Yeah, I can see that. <laughs> I can see that. I mean, there was when we were touring with a. We did a couple tours with El Nino, one in a, you know, one in the states and then one in Europe. And I mean, it's just that you know when you're all from Jersey and shit, there's constant ball busting going yeah, on yeah. the whole time. Like, and it's because you already know each other. There's no like getting to know you period. So it's kind of like from day one, boom, it's on, you know. <laughs> and that's pretty much just how it went, which made for some some really good times. It just it makes it more comfortable on a certain level because it's like people who already obviously come from where you come from and yeah. kind of like have a lot of things in common but um yeah things kind of just escalated from there but it was fun kind of like coming up in those hardcore shows and, and coming out of big there was a lot of bands that practice that big noise dave witty who's uh from municipal ways and discords axis and you know all those things he actually used to rehearse there as well that's wow. actually where i first met dave witty and that was 1999 <laughs> 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 damn <laughs> yeah it was a long time ago but um you know he the guy that owned the place was also friends with all these people like he's friends with d snyder he got all these pictures up of him and there was just a lot of bands that came to that place that actually his other buddy charlie mills played with skid row on that big Kiss reunion tour and all that shit. Okay. So he, I mean, there was just kind of this, it was like a shithole place with character, but he also knew all these different people and there was all these different kind of bands of different types, like ska bands and shit that actually were doing things. They were actually out in the world touring and 
other bands that were doing, you know, bigger shows around the area, you know, 400 kids, 500 kids, 1,000 kids. And it was kind of crazy, you know, like, that's where we started to kind of, I guess, learn more and get connected to all the people that led us to getting signed and led us to getting to a touring lifestyle and, and all of that. But, yeah, the Birch Hill days... It was just a fantastic place. Like, it had so many weird and great qualities, and there's also so many party and disgusting stories that you can attribute to the place. Because <laughs> that's the, the, the beauty of that place, you know. It was, it was a really nice club. It really sounded good. They had volleyball nets outside, like, you know, all this weird shit that didn't, on the surface, make sense in your head. But it was, it was cool, you know. It was, it was the most popular big place to go that was kind of, like, more centrally located. Because you have... You know, like, obsessions and connections and shit. But for us, that was, like, you know, obsessions, first of all, was out in the woods and fucking Randolph. Right, So who right. the fuck is going there, you know? like. But the only thing about obsessions was that's where they had all the heaviest of metal shows most of the time. Like, on a consistent yeah. basis. You know, they had a lot of death metal shows there and whatever. But Birch Hill was a place, like... That's where you could see, you know, more local bands that were actually doing something start to shine. And you learn more, like, see what was going on around your area, see where bands were really kind of kicking ass. That was, like, the proving ground, so to speak. Like, oh, you, you guys playing at the Berkshire? Oh, shit. You know, like, it was, you know, it was a really big deal uh, initially. And then when you, you could play there all the time, then, like, that was, like, a really huge deal. You yeah, know, if you were yeah. getting on shows at the Berkshire consistent. That you were somebody, you know. <laughs> you know, but yeah, um, I missed out on that place. I didn't really start going to shows till after it closed. Yeah, that sucks. And it was crazy too because um, Stan Levinstone, the guy that that ran that shit, he had two daughters, two twin daughters, and they were in that business for years. I mean, they were still doing shows. You know, Stan Silver's doing stuff. I don't know if he still does, but I think he still does here and there, up in Pennsylvania. Oh, okay. But he had, you know, that place was ripping for a really long time. Like, and you could see everything there from, you know, Kansas to fucking, you know, Bon Jovi, Overkill, fucking yeah, yeah. whatever, Skid Row, fucking, it was, it was all happening at the Birch Hill, you know, like, that was the spot, you know, that was the spot. Yeah. But then obviously, you know, um, we started touring and seeing that, you know, the, the world's a little bit bigger than, <laughs> yeah, yeah. than we imagined. <laughs> I mean, we did some stuff. We did a brief UK run, which was like it was just it was just a grimy tour with a band called Lab Rat. Lab Rat was actually comprised with um, a couple guys that actually worked for different labels in England. One guy worked for Century Media, and they did a bunch of stuff. It was so much fun though. And another band called Coexist, which it was just like our first time really having you know being out of the country and just having a fun time. And all right after that, that's when things kind of just escalated from there. It was kind of slow moving. And to be honest, I felt like, you know, I'm pretty sure we all felt like just beaten down <laughs> after touring on determination. Like it was just, cause you know, you got pumped full of ideas and of course a lot of great things happened, but you get pumped full of ideas about, you know, once you get signed and you start touring, you, you have this fantasy in your mind of what it's going to, to be like. Yeah. And then once you get out there and actually do it, especially for that long, the way that we're doing it, like you're grinding it out, you know what I mean? You're making, you're basically losing money on tours, yeah, predominantly. And that's the thing that people understand too. They're like, bands should tour, and how come you know they don't do this, or how come they're always worried about money? And like, listen, people, you know, <laughs> you don't just get signed and then you're rich. Those days are over, like, right, right. You know, in the '70s and like, you know, it's not to say that they were all rich, but that's when they still did do, you know, like big record deals. Like, yeah, all right, yeah. we're gonna just give you five hundred thousand dollars to, you know, sign with this yeah. record label. We're going to give you, 
you know, whatever the large amount of money was for that time period. And, you know, that was like a normal thing. And, you know, obviously they got fucked over too in a lot of different ways because that's the industry. But um, it was very sort of like disheartening, I'd say, in a little bit of a way, like when we got done with touring on Determination because you feel like you have that fantasy built up in your head about what it's going to be. And when it's not that, then you're kind of like, oh. You know, right. I still got to get in this fucking shit-ass van that we've been riding in that smells like feet. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and... Well, but then after that came Gone Forever, and I would say that that even says well, on the band's Wikipedia, Gone Forever, coupled with the appearance on OzFest, raised the band's profile considerably. Yeah, I mean, it did do that. What they don't say on Wikipedia is the, the stressful time in between coming home from Determination and writing Gone Forever before... You know, that almost broke the band up in and of itself. Oh, wow. Well, I mean, you know, there was a lot of different factors where we're kind of seeing what other bands were doing and where they were going and that they were getting bigger and trying to think of, you know, what you need to do and how to make the music better and being more demanding of yourself and everybody in the band and causes a lot of tension. And at the same time, you're feeling super defeated because, you know, still going to work six days a week, working 10, 12-hour days. I literally used to go to work, landscaping, leave my landscaping job, It'd be like, you know, 7 o'clock at night after I've been working since 7 in the morning. I'd still be covered in, like, mulch and dirt and sweat and shit and have to go into rehearsal for three hours and play drums and shit. Yeah. Not the funnest experience. And it also doesn't... It's it's very hard to retain information when you're completely exhausted all the time. Well, I understand. <laughs> so, you know, um, that was also a, a huge factor for me. But it was a huge factor for everybody else because then, like, you're, like, writing new stuff... And then, like, I was like, I don't remember what we did last week (laughs) or, you know, three days ago. I'm fucking tired. Like, I don't remember. But, you know, other dudes are like, they're sitting around rehashing that shit over and over and over again and over and over again. So that would cause a lot of tension. There was just so much going on. And it was so ridiculously stressful. (laughs) <laughs> that's, that's what I felt like. And, like, I felt like, oh, my God, Zeke. You know, to the point where definitely there was a lot of anger and resentment kind of going on. And it was, like, everything seemed to be sort of on the brink somewhere along the lines. Like, is this, are we going to break up? Are we going to have to, is somebody going to quit? Or mm-hmm. somebody, what's going to happen? You know, like, right. it felt like everything's kind of going. Then, the, you know, like we write a great riff or something would go good and you'd feel that for a few minutes, but that feeling is fleeting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, you know, that's just, it's a creative surge, but what you're looking for is, you know, sort of long-lasting results that you can see and feel outwardly, which the first moment, now here's a, a partial Birch Hill story. We're actually at the Birch Hill listening to the first mixes of Gone Forever that Colin Richardson did. And it's like, as soon as we started playing it, everybody just sort of looked at each other and started smiling and giggling because it sounded so good. (laughs) (laughs) And that was kind of like the biggest relief that you could possibly feel out of all the tension. And it felt like, okay, well, maybe all this shit was really worth it. And then as soon as that happens and we started listening to the mix or whatever, I remember talking about, okay, well, here's here's what's going on. You know, Oxfest is going on. This is what we need to do it. You know, this is what Century Media wants. This is what it's going to cost. This is what you're going to have to do. This is who's on it already. And, like, that Oxfest, everybody was on it. The second stage was just, I think about it now, it's like, the second stage alone was so ridiculous. Like, that could have been an Oxfest. Right, 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 right. (laughs) Especially, like, if you took that second stage and took that collection of bands and, say, had that 
those that collection of bands playing now, it would be huge. Right. It would right. be ridiculously huge. Yeah, I mean, you'd Slipknot headlining second yeah, stage. Yeah, we had Slipknot, Hatebreed, Lamb of God, Devil Driver, Us, Darkest Hour, Atreyu, Otep. God damn it. I, I know I'm missing some more in here. <laughs> there was, my point is there was a bunch of bands that, because of that tour, achieved a lot of success. I mean... I Killswitch might have been on that year, too. No, they no, weren't. They, they weren't, weren't on, on that year? Everybody keeps saying that. They were not, they were not there. <laughs> I know they were there at some point. Oh, yeah. I, I the mean, they were there, they were there the next year when Shadow Soul did it, which okay. was 2005. I figure but, I did every... I, I went to everyone from O2 until they stopped touring the OzFest, so... Yeah, they I all mean, kind of blend together to me. I think the year that we did it was the last year that it was that long because it was still two and a half months at that point. And I remember that year because we did a Machine Head tour in the States with 36 Crazy Fists. And then we did OzFest. And then we came home for like, I think it was like maybe four days, maybe a week at most. And then we went to Europe with Machine Head for 10 and a half weeks, which was like ridiculous. It was just <laughs> so fucking crazy. You know, doing download festivals, doing more festivals and just going like literally everywhere. And it was like, oh, we're going everywhere. Because it was so long. It was like we had never experienced anything like that. And I'm going to tell you what, that shit was brutal. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I like Europe, but... Ten and a half weeks in Europe is tough. <laughs> I don't care who you are. You know, like maybe if you, you know, like if you're a Metallica and shit, and you're just chilling, you know, flying around to wherever you, you basically you have enough money to where anywhere you go in the world is going to be the same essentially. But when you're not rolling like that, the little differences do matter. <laughs> right, right. But um, you know, obviously, yeah, Ozfest. It was such a. It was another experience where most of the bands like just knew each other. Yeah. Um, so it was basically like summer camp, you know, and then it was also great because, you know, like our off days, our off day shows were ridiculous. It was like either us, Hatebreed, Slayer and Slipknot or us, Slayer and Slipknot. Those, yeah. were, those were our off day shows <laughs> from Onsets. So obviously it did, it did a lot for us. It, it helped us out a lot, you know, not just selling records, but that many people seeing you live you know, unless you absolutely suck, the law of averages are just tremendously in your favor. Right, You're right. literally just in front of thousands of people every day. Like, the smallest crowd is 3,000 people on any given day. So, that's pretty good. You know? <laughs> that's that's nice in your favor. But, yeah, that was kind of like when things started to change. It was the first time really being on our own bus. You know, like, all right, now we got our own bus. We got our own crew. You know, you feel like you're like a professional now. Like, I feel like a professional <laughs> But it was also a, a huge learning experience about learning about what, you know, the next level in the industry and what's going on and, you know, what you need to do and, and the, the level of competition. Because at that point, you know, you're playing with a bunch of other bands that are on that same level or higher. Oh, Laguna Coil was also on that stage. Just yeah. forgot about that. Yeah, Laguna yeah. Coil. Damn. Uh, bleeding Through. Yeah. Damn, there was a lot of bands on that second <laughs> stage. And it was the first year that Dave Lombardo came back to Slayer. Oh, Super Joint Ritual. Was on that tour. Demo Borg here. Yeah, that's right, because Demo played that year. Judas Cr- Priest. Cradle had pl- played the year before. Mm. And Judas Priest was on that on that tour as well. It was just huge. The whole tour was fucking huge. But yeah, it's like that was kind of a, a turning point for us, for sure, where people started to, I feel like we kind of went from a point of being a super underground band where people started being like, okay, these guys are fucking serious. You know, like, you know, it wasn't... I feel like there was, at some point, like, people were looking at 
looking at this band, like, they didn't know what it was, you know, like, is it a hardcore band, you know, some people, you know, see us and have this idea, like, it was going to be some kind of, like, rap metal bullshit, or, you know, not that all rap metal is bullshit, but you get my Not to go, do they think that because you were black guys, or? Well, I mean, obviously, I mean, we heard all kinds of ridiculous, (laughs) (laughs) you know, um, assumptions that people made. But I think that was at the point where people started saying, okay, this is a serious metal band. These dudes are not, they're not playing around. It's not not a joke. (laughs) A lot of times people talk about body count and body count, for example. When you listen to body count now, it doesn't sound like body count when it first started. Yeah, yeah. Okay, like when body count first came out, I was not particularly a fan. Because I felt like, I don't know what what this is, you know. This is definitely not a metal band. Now you listen to that shit and you say to yourself, this sounds like a band. And I felt like we were kind of somewhere in that point initially. And then when people started hearing that record, that's when it's like a little bit of the respect we at least felt, I'm sure, on some level we deserved, started to happen and manifest around us. You know, right, like, right. to where it was like tangible. And then it just kind of went from there. Obviously, once that happens, then you, you know, you have greater expectations you have greater expectations for the music so it just kind of grew from there and from that point you know the the band's lineup was stable until 09 when when dallas left now you had mentioned before and around the time of gone forever being on the brink and not sure what's going on like when when dallas left was that something that was expected or was that a surprise i mean honestly it it it, it wasn't it wasn't i mean it, it was because literally the dude had been quitting the band every month i think for for, for 10 years at that point. Oh, wow. so, you know, he's always quitting. There's always some reason for him to, to quit because he just wanted, he's like a super emotional dude, you know, to begin with. He's, he's it's kind of like having a chick in a band because he's so emotional. Like, you know, women basically, they run off emotions. They feel something, just go with it. And that's kind of how he was. You know, he just feel this. He'd be angry or whatever. And he'd say whatever. Or, he disagreed about something, and then he just fucking swarm out or whatever. And you'd be like, what the fuck is going on right now? What, is, what are you talking about? <laughs> but in this specific instance, I think it was at a point where it's like, basically, we were leaving to go do the um, that Damn God tour with Bodum and As I Leave Dying and um, Suicidal Tendencies was on some of the dates and Municipal Waste. And I think it was like the night before, he calls Doc up and tells him, unless he picks him up, he's not going or some, some such shit. I, I, it's it's a little foggy for me at this point, but basically he just said some ridiculous things. And it's just like, all right, man. You know, I think everybody at that point, especially Doc, was kind of like over it. I know I was definitely over, you know, these fucking mood swings or whatever you want to call it. And everybody's basically over it. And I was like, all right, man, can you just be, why you got to be like this all the time? Just be a stable motherfucker, at least relatively, you know, normal. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And I remember sitting in the van that morning, knowing that this dude wasn't going to show up or whatever. And we just all kind of looked at each other like, you know what, man? Fuck it. Because we were sitting in the van. It's like, it's actually peaceful in here. Everybody's being cool. <laughs> you know, like, all right. And um, it was kind of like, all right. And then we made a few attempts to say, like, listen, man, if you're going to calm this shit down, then, you know, we'll figure something out and get you, you know, we'll get you out here and let's get... Let's get going. And he basically said that he was not going to be responsible for his behavior <laughs> to that to that degree. And he was going to act basically however he wanted to act. And that was that. And we all kind of looked at each other and went, uh, well, yeah, that's unacceptable. So, <laughs> so we just kind of did what we needed to do. And then we made arrangements to 
you know, to get Chris out. Yeah. And he, he was great filling it. It was like, it was awesome. I was like, man, this dude came on after the first couple of days. It was like perfect coming out of it. So I was like, all right, well, that made it easy. And he did a great job. So, you know, the lineup stayed steady, except for that one exclusion, because it just, it was unavoidable, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it could have been avoided, but, you know, and I think that, Everybody else in the band made every attempt they possibly could to try to, you know, make it better and make it easier for him to, to stay and keep the band intact. And I don't know if he just took that as a sign of, like, okay, well, if they're gonna willing to go that far, then fuck it, I'll just do what I want and they'll go along with it kind of thing. Or what? I don't know. Honestly, I don't know what was going through his head. <laughs> I, can't, I, can't, I can't really explain that. But that's that's kind of the way I sort of felt like he was just like fuck it I'm just gonna do and act how I'm gonna act or whatever I say or do technically not gonna you know I felt like he didn't really take responsibility for those things and he was just expecting us to just be okay with it and a lot of it was like super abusive so how how long does anybody like want to be a whip dog like you just that shit's corny you know right Nobody right wants right to deal with that so he just you know he had to go his own way and do his own thing and that's how you know. Yeah, that's how it had to be. So, did we see it coming? I mean, I feel like we always all sort of saw it coming, but right. we just never believed it to be real because he said it so many times. That how many times are you gonna see the same shit until eventually it comes to fruition? So you just kind of like at, at a certain point you just start writing it off, like all right, all right, whatever, motherfucker. Right, you're right, gonna quit, right. You're gonna quit, you know. And then finally, he just kind of kicked himself out of the band, essentially. <laughs> so, I mean. I think we all kind of felt it, but no one ever suspected it to be real until he actually basically just kicked himself out of the band. Then it just kind of became real. Right, right. So I saw you guys, you know, from that first time at OzFest through through the intervening years, I saw you guys a bunch of times. Like I said, Starland. The last time I saw you guys play was at the Trespass America Festival in 2012. About a year after that tour, Doc announced he was leaving, and then you and Byron were like, all right, the band's over. What happened there? I mean, I don't think it was, it's not one thing, it's kind of the culmination of several things. The band has hit a point where I feel, one, we never, like, all our peers had kind of broke and had a certain success headlining and with record sales or whatever, they had the right team, that whatever things went the right way for a bunch of other people, and we never seemed to quite get our shit together in the right way, like, I felt like we wrote a lot of great music, but that's always where it stopped, mm. you know, like, we wrote a lot of great music and we just couldn't seem to find any way for anybody else to really or i don't want to say that anybody else to really appreciate it but it just was like it didn't go as far as we needed the band to go in order to survive at that point in any specific way whether it was touring or headlining or financially everything was like ice skating uphill all the time and when you're in that position it takes a toll on everybody in different ways and I feel like once that starts happening, it causes so much strife within the band as well. And it's just too much. It's just too much of everything. Too much pressure. Too much constant burden. You feel like you're working your ass off and trying. You're writing really great music. So why isn't? Why aren't things better? You know. And then you're basically taking out on everybody around you. Your booking agent, your manager, because you're looking for a reason. And sometimes there just really isn't one reason. There's no. There's no like, okay, well, it's this, you know, it's just, this is a, an industry where a lot of things are just basically, some of it's just sometimes it's just luck and timing, you know, and whatever it was that wasn't in our favor, it just, it hit a point where like it was going good and then it got to this point and then 
whatever those things were that needed to line up just never seemed to line up. It would just kind of get two-thirds of the way. And then that last third, the important third, you know, just never seemed to happen. And like I said, that causes all the other things, you know, causes tension within the band. Everybody's disheartened. It causes, you know, the potential to blame everything and everyone around you because you you're looking for an answer and there, and there doesn't really seem to be an answer. And you're asking everybody that, you know, you're asking your manager, like, why the fuck, you know, why isn't this happening? You're asking, why the fuck isn't this going on? Why can't we do this? Why can't we do that? Why isn't the label doing this? Like, why? And it's like you're looking for all these answers and there really is none. And at a certain point, that in itself will destroy a band. You know, um, the monotony of no movement. You're just kind of sitting there in this one spot that you can't seem to get out of no matter what you do. You're just kind of like, all right, this is, God forbid, is the main support band. They're not a headlining band. This is what you're going to do. That is the spot that the world has declared of you. This is as big as it's, or as good as it's going to get. And that's what it kind of, you know, just kind of felt like. You know, yeah, like yeah. nobody really gives a shit. So why should you start to have those kind of thoughts? Like nobody really gives a shit. So why should I? You know, like what is the point? And then also, you know, it's like you're getting older. People want to do things with their lives. You know, John has a kid. Byron's got a kid. You know, people want to go out and do other other things, other creative things. And it's just how it went. You yeah, know, yeah. things just, you know, it wasn't overnight. It's just things started to break down because of the way the band just became stagnant. And that stagnancy is one of the biggest things that kills a band. You know, not being in a position, especially when you're like, you know, everything's a quarrel because you're relying on the band for so much. You know, like, now the band's about money. It's got to be like, it's got to be doing this. you got to be making this amount of money yeah. because now you're touring all the time. And then, then you're kind of half touring all the time. You're like, all right, I'm going to tour for this amount of time. Then what are you going to do? You know, people need to get jobs. But yeah, yeah. what kind of job are you going to get when you're going for four months here, or five months here, or three months there? You know, yeah, yeah. There's not a lot of places that are going to deal with that shit where you can come and go as you please. So then it just becomes, you know, all these factors, real life factors come into play and slowly take away from the positive sides of being in a band. You know, it just sucks all the positivity and life energy out of it and then just cause everybody to be beaten essentially <laughs> you know at that point you just beat down and and when you're beat down like that you're angry and just it, that anger goes any number of directions mm-hmm. and basically that's you know just dismantles the band yeah so since since god forbid broke up i've seen your name attached to other projects musical projects and just other things because mm-hmm. you're you're around here i'm around here we kind of encounter each other and you being someone of note i see you online and shit so the first the first band that i saw your name attached to after the split was lead pipe cruelty alongside members of anthrax and i will be done but i wasn't able to find any music for that band online okay so <laughs> that basically just it was like um Something that got started for fun, I called up some friends to do this band, and uh, we started writing some stuff, and then we actually recorded a couple songs at a, I was working at a studio in Manhattan at the time, and we recorded a couple songs there, but it just turned into like, it was just impossible to keep together and to actually make happen, because one, Jay from Die Will Be Done was all, he was like, he lives up in uh, Rhode Island, whatever, and it was like, kind of like a geographical nightmare, and then getting together to rehearse, and it's just like, I was also doing the studio work, where then eventually it evolved into producing and other things, and I was just, I was fucking seven days a week, 14 hour days, 16 hour days, just kind of at it, and everybody kind of had other things going on at the time, it was just kind of 
impossible to sort of keep together and, and keep functioning. But, I, you know, it was still fun to do, and it was a good time with some good dudes. It just, it, you know, it was just one of those things that it went where it went, and that's as far as it could go. You know? So you said that you guys recorded a couple songs. Is there any chance of that ever seeing the light of day? Or? I mean, uh, you never know. Maybe one day. <laughs> <laughs> I have the masters sitting up in storage, but, uh, I mean, we really never talked about it, you know, what to do with it. I mean, it wasn't like anything too crazy, so we just didn't really think about it too much. The idea was to sort of put together an EP, but we never got that far. We did a couple demo songs or whatever, and that's kind of where, where it petered out. And then your current band, Disciples of Verity, features yourself alongside uh, members of Living Color, Negative Sky, and Second Skin. How did that band get together? Just mutual friends, uh, the bass player, George... We have a mutual friend, Smitty, and Corey Glover also knows this guy, Smitty. He used to manage George's band and the guitarist band. I actually produced George's other band's album. So it's just kind of like an inner working of people that already knew each other, and it came about kind of like Glover wanted to do something heavy. He wanted to do like a heavy project, you know, something that he had really never done before. Mm -hmm. And ended up talking to Smitty about it. Smitty ended up talking to George about it. And then George wrote me into this shit saying that, you know, oh, you want to help me finish this album and produce the record? I was like, yeah, sure. And then kind of missed her. It's kind of spun like a snowball effect into me getting into the band. And next thing I know, you know, it was a whole, for me just working on the record to being in the band to, <laughs> to you know, what it's become now. But it, 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 it honestly, it was kind of like a, another one of those Mr. Magoo experiences. It just kind of fell ass backwards together and happened. Right, right. You know, uh, it wasn't, I don't, I don't feel like it was super planned. You know, George was writing some stuff for Corey, and he had some ideas of calling some other people. Obviously, um, Morgan Rose is on, on the, played on one of the original songs, because he didn't know that it was going to be a band at the time. He was just trying to get people to, you know, play the different parts on the album. And then once I got into the band... At the time, we still didn't even have a real lead guitar player, so I hit up a few, like I hit up Jeff Loomis and Phil Demo and Tara from Kitty and Nice Horse and asked them to put solos on the record, and they all chipped in very nicely yeah. <laughs> out of friendship. And, and, you know, from there, it just kind of escalated. But it all happened initially just kind of, like I said, it was kind of snowball effect. One thing led to another, and there you go. You know, it wasn't anything crazy, you know, any kind of crazy story. Like, we had this master plan, <laughs> you know. <laughs> this is how it's going to go down. <laughs> yeah, it was nothing like that. Now, can you tell me what the band's name means? Well, initially, George and I were talking about what the band should be named and, you know, what we wanted the, the, the band's name to sort of revolve around. And one of the concepts was kind of like we didn't want the band name to sound particularly like the most metal band in the universe we wanted it kind of to be a sort of ambiguous sort of name in that you couldn't attach it to any specific genre per se and then it was also about being these guys who were all coming from sort of different aspects of music and finding the truth in this chemistry which is that's what verity means okay true so that's really where it came from. We wanted to have a kind of name that was like, you couldn't just attach to any genre and just kind of pigeonhole us into. And we also wanted to have something with some kind of meaning of death that actually attached to the guys in the band. Okay. Yeah. All right. But with anything that crazy. You know, with any Einstein level shit going on. <laughs> yeah. All right. So you were talking about the album. I actually listened to it last night. Pragmatic Sanction came out in last year, 2020. Is there new music on the horizon? It actually, the. The whole album is not actually out. Oh, okay. Technically speaking. Okay, so there's Which more I than think, those like nine tracks that were on the. 
Yeah, I mean, there's there's those nine tracks. We have two more tracks that are that we just that we recorded that are going to be with those other nine tracks. So basically, um, when all the first nine tracks got done, then we signed a deal with SM1 Sony, and we recorded a couple more tracks to go on the album with that, and they wanted to push the, the album release back until this coming year. Okay, so all right. That's how that went. <laughs> oh, okay. So technically speaking, the album will be out. The album is not actually, actually out yet. No. Okay. But we released like 8,500 singles off the album, so <laughs> it's almost like the album's out, but it's not technically out. Okay, all right. Um, now, in addition to, to the bands that you're known for, I'd also found in, in searching your name, I found your name attached to a, a Kickstarter for a space called The Hub, um, but it shows that that Kickstarter was canceled. Did that ever, did that so basically, ever materialize? Um, the Hub was a place, like, I rented this house out in uh, South Brunswick, and I was producing bands at the time, and I, I wanted to create a place where, you know, basically young guys that were in bands come, like, jam, be able to talk about the industry, talk about touring, maybe, you know, meet other guys from other bands. But essentially, it just it became uncost-effective for me to just be there and, and to run something of that nature. It was a, a great idea in my head. I just didn't realize how much, you know, over time, how much money it was going to cost me, and it did cost quite a bit. So, but I mean, even before the Kickstarter thing really got started, I kind of just canceled that. I said, you know, I don't want to do that. I'm just going to make it about this and keep it focused. And so that ended up costing me a lot of money. And then I ended up shifting focus. I started doing some more studio work and I was kind of like, all right, I can't do both. Right, right. Which I tried. I tried initially to do both, but it just, it was too much. I mean, I, I, I'm continually kind of like doing a lot of things and trying to keep my hand a lot of pies and stay busy. But at a certain point, you have I've learned that, you know, sometimes you just have to say, all right, listen, I got to be realistic. <laughs> say, I can't do everything that I want to do. I'm just going to have to do this until it's established and right. try to branch out and do other things that I want to do. I get that, man. I mean, this podcast is something that I do as a hobby because I've always wanted to, you know, I went to college for broadcasting. I wanted to get a job at Sirius didn't quite work out i got two kids so i got to work a real job Mm -hmm. and so i do this when i've got time to do it and the last show i did was in july because i bought a house and i've just been fucking busy yeah so i'm trying to you know this is this is going to be not a relaunch because it didn't really go anywhere i just took a break but you know we're gonna you know i don't want to i don't want to stop doing this this is Mm -hmm. fun but it has to fit into my schedule yeah i hear that the other thing that I that I found that you were involved with was the Ride for Dime organization, mm. which, uh, with the way the last couple of years have been, wouldn't be able to do any of those events anyway. Yeah, it's kind of sucked because of all the pandemic shit, but um, basically, a guy by the name of Joe Jones, who's from Philadelphia, was doing it out on the East Coast, and then he had some other things that he wanted to get into, but uh, Rita, you know, called me up and asked me if I would do the events out here on the East Coast, so I formed the East Coast chapter, and I just kind of took it over, but the past couple of years, I haven't been able to do shit, which sucks, it's just the way it's been, you right. know, it's kind of... Well, I was kind of uh, wondering if the, organ- not, not just the East Coast, but if the organization as a whole still existed at this point, because when I was doing research, like, I, when I googled Ride for Dime, one of the first results that came up was a LinkedIn page for the company that says permanently closed. Yeah, I mean, things <laughs> just kind of went crazy, especially, you know, um, 
Not only just the pandemic, but after the pandemic, so much shit happened in that time. You know, Vinny died, and then all kinds of things going on with the state, and then there's things going on with the charity organization, and everything. And then, of course, you know, Rita getting dragged in a thousand different directions. So, it's just, I mean, I don't really completely know the state of things at this point. I don't think that she does, (laughs) to be honest. Everything's gone so haywire, and it continues to be so. That, I mean, she hasn't done the one in Texas, obviously, in more than two years now. So, it's like, obviously, no one else, because there was, you know, she would do the thing, the dime at Nam every year, which obviously Nam's got postponed and pushed back again this year. Yeah. So that hasn't happened in two years since the last time I was there. And then there was the one in Texas, the one in Nashville, and then one out here. And now obviously all those, you know, was actually growing into like a more known thing that a lot of people knew about and wanted to get more involved with. But now it's all fucked up. Like many, <laughs> like many other things have been because of all this shit that's going on. Right. Right. So. To be determined. <laughs> to be determined. To be determined. Yes, indeed. So you've mentioned the music industry. You've mentioned the phrase "the industry" a few times. You, you know, you've had, you, you've been involved in, in various capacities. And I'm just wondering. I ask everybody that's on the show this question: How do you feel about the current state? And and it's a little weird, especially the last couple of years with COVID. But even before that, the current state of the music industry. Where, like, like you were mentioning, people don't get big record deals anymore. People don't buy music anymore. The the, the, the general consensus, it seems, of, of the music-consuming populace is, well, I don't really need to buy the music. I can just subscribe to Spotify or illegally download. Bands make all their money at concerts anyway. What do I got to buy the music for? Well, yeah, I mean, it's really, I think that's more of an age thing as well. I mean, depending on how you look at it. I mean, there's a lot of younger people now that are, you know, because vinyl kind of came back to the scene and a lot of older people and younger people will buy vinyl because it became trendy again to sort of buy it. But, I mean, obviously, yeah, people subscribe to Spotify or Pandora or whatever the fuck it is, which I'm not going to lie, I do too, but I also buy records because I come from an age where people used to buy records. Right, right. Obviously, there are people now who are born completely in the age where they have never bought a fucking thing. So what is the point? They're not going to just start out of the blue, like, oh, maybe I, today I'm going to buy a CD. I don't even barely know what a CD is, but I'm today, you know, I'm going <laughs> to set a landmark occasion and buy myself a CD. So as far as that's concerned, I mean, you can sit there and, and put negative spins on it or, or whatever, but I think that you just it's not something that you can even afford to dwell on at being in this industry. You just have to realize what's going on and adapt to it. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's just the way it is. I do feel like people still do, in addition to subscribing to a lot of shit, you have an age of people that will still buy, like, singles. Like, they'll hit up, like, iTunes, whatever. You know, they'll look into this or that and buy one thing at a time. Yeah. But uh, even that is pretty sparse. But I do feel like because it's has been more spoken about on social media and stuff like that by a lot of different bands and a lot of different fans and people that people will go to shows and buy shit just to have shit because they then understand the concept of having something tangible yeah. in their hand from the experience yeah which you have bands like trivium for instance that are do like live streaming things and they have like merch bundles so like you can't buy a ticket to the live stream unless you buy this t-shirt because that's kind of like the point of going to a live show. Right, right. You want to have this sort of, you know, you want to have the memories of it. You want to have the memorabilia from it. And that's where they're kind of, you know, they're adapting and kind of pushing the envelope, which I think is great. You know, the, like they're really smart to do that. Like yeah. they're moving things in a way where our, we're not going to bitch about what's going on. We're just going to figure out how to be a part of it and, and make the best of it and move forward. Yeah. You know, which is what I think all bands need to just, you need to do at this point because if you're sitting there and bitching about, what you can't do or what people aren't doing 
it's not helping you. You know, it's not changing anything. That's for sure. Right. I mean, I think it's good for everybody to speak out and say, hey, you know, go to live shows, buy CDs, buy T-shirts, buy merch, whatever. I think that people should always speak about that because ultimately I feel like that's what connects a lot of fans with the bands is, you know, tangible things and memories and live experiences. You know, other than the music itself, that's the connection between the people and the people that make it. And there's been a lot of this because of COVID. There's been a lot more of this live stream and, and, and stuff because it's there haven't been concerts, so there's nothing else to do. Yeah, I mean, it's not a cheap enterprise. That's the other thing about live streaming. It's like if you really want to do it properly, you either got to go to some place that is set up for that. You know, it's not like, you, you know, like Trivia's got a, that hanger the set hanger, up. hanger, right. And, you know, everybody's not doing that. Every band can't do that. Right, right. <laughs> no, everybody is not in that position. Also, because of certain, like, interfaces like Twitch, you know what I mean, where at least people can do more live streaming things, whether it's on their own or whatever, right. it's kind of at least a little bit easier to do, I think, for more people to get out there and do some live streaming stuff. Well, Matt but, from Trivium is doing that a lot. And then I think yeah. that another, another friend that we've got in common, I saw you tag in one of his posts the other day, uh, Will from uh, Thanatonic Desire, mm-hmm. he's been doing Twitch lately too. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't doing. I just started hopping on there occasionally a couple of weeks ago because I was talking to Powell from Trivium about it actually on Twitter, and he basically called me out on Twitter to where I I didn't really have a choice. I had to <laughs> I had to go like I literally went and like download the app that day and got on Twitter and started you know started yeah. doing some stuff. But I, I'm glad that he did it because. Honestly, it's it's really fun to do. I've got to interact with some people that like it's kind of a little bit more like I'll you know I'll see their comments, I get to chat with them, and I'll just kind of be. You can do pretty much anything you want, but mm-hmm. it's a way to get more personal with fans, and fans can get more personal with you. And you can do it whenever you really want to, and be, you know because it is you can do it like from your phone if you want, which is a little more. It's not the most, you know, it's not like being in that room like Matt's in all the time. It's got like fucking thirty five screens and all this yeah. crazy shit, but. I think it's great that you can just do it from your phone or, or, or a tablet or whatever because it is mobile. Like, if I want to go do something at Dingbats, it's be like, hey, man, I'm online. I'm live streaming from Dingbats right now. You guys want to check out the fucking thing? You can you can do that. You yeah, know? yeah. I'm in my fucking kitchen right now. I'm going to make some fucking ribs for a little bit and we'll talk about music. You can do that. Right, You right, know, right. it makes it pretty awesome that you can, there's actually a platform to do something like that. Yeah. But as far as the entire industry is concerned, I mean, I think that there's various levels of good and bad of what's going on right now. Creatively, I feel like a lot of things are very stagnant because things are so lean financially with record sales and things of that nature, or even selling merch, that where it makes bands more timid because every band wants to be successful. So when you want to be successful, people start thinking, I have to fit within this niche or in this scene or in this genre or do exactly like whatever this band does to where it doesn't create a lot of bands that are different and creative. It creates a lot of bands that are just kind of like towing the line of what's, all right, this is what's popular right now. I could, you know, I have to stay in this sort of these parameters if, if the band wants to be successful, you know, which I think takes a lot of the actual concepts of what this a lot of this music was created for in the first place. I mean, metal and hardcore and punk is all created out of angst and rebellion and having a message and you know, that's what the whole thing was about. And now it's kind of become, you know, fake angst. <laughs> it's you know, it's more conformity. Like we have to have these catchy hooks. We have to have these kind of melodies. We have to have this kind of heavy part. We have to have this amount of shredding. Not too much, but this amount just so we stay in this safe zone of this and that. 
And I feel like that's kind of shitty that's happening right now. Like, maybe some people say that's not true. But, I mean, I think if you take a look around and you look across all music, you can definitely tell whether it's hip-hop or fucking pop country bullshit or whatever. You can see that there's so much of any one genre that is so... One act to the next is so similar that it's like you don't even care who you're listening to. You know, like there's no individuality. Yeah. It's just kind of blended into the background. And I feel like that's kind of sad. But what are you going to do? Everything doesn't change overnight. But I think it's just a cycle that this industry has to go through until the next cycle happens. Right. You know, I feel like it's not the first time. There, I'm, there was obviously up here in the, in the 70s where you had these super huge arena bands of a certain kind. You know, from Led Zeppelin to the fucking Who to fucking Queen and all these bands. Yeah. And then there was, you know, other bands that were of the same ilk, but of a lower tier. And there was kind of like a lull in there. Then you kind of hit the the 80s. And you had like Journey and kind of, you know, those kind of bands. And then there was kind of like a lull. I think this is no different. Most of these things seem pretty cyclical to me, like most things in life are. Yeah. So you just got to, you know, see, see what the next uptick is going to be. I really don't know what that what that's going to be. I don't think that anybody does at this point, but I'm sure at some point it'll happen. But um, these are all different contributing factors, I think, to the sort of uneasy point we're at in this industry. And then, obviously, all the other outside factors are definitely don't help. <laughs> right, right. You know, having pandemics and people not being able to play shows, and even if you can play a show, you know, you got to get vaccinated, boosted, fucking, you got to get a fucking HIPAA Test. report, you got to get a fucking uh, a note from your third grade teacher and shit, like, <laughs> you know, just to go outside. And it's like, you know, you got to have a fucking name tag and fucking whatever else. And that kills a lot of people's ambition to go to a show because nobody wants to be hassled just right. to go to a fucking show. It's like, oh, you know, I'm going to fucking take a shower and go to the show. Nope, 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 nope. You got to take a shower. You got to make sure that you have your phone and with all your shit on it, make sure that you can show them that. Or you got to have your vaccination card laminated and you make sure. And then now they're talking about bringing you possible boost. So now you got to get three shots, four shots just to go out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and then you better make sure you're masked up and you better make sure that you have proof that you have been shot up. You know, it's like a lot of people are just like, fuck it. I don't even want to be bothered. I'll just turn around Spotify. I have a concert in my house by myself. <laughs> you know, I, and, and it's it's a lot of people, especially people that get older, they start to hit like 35 and shit where, hey, you know, they would have said to their girlfriend or boyfriend or husband or wife, hey, you want to go out and go to the show and hang out, you know, blow off some steam. It's been a long work week. Let's go see such and such on Friday or Saturday or whatever the fuck. Now they're kind of like, I don't want to fucking do that. Let's just hang out at home and fucking have a couple beers so we can listen to music and do yeah. whatever. Yeah. And we don't have to drive anywhere. You know, the motivation, you know, the things sort of curbing people's motivation to go out to shows is increasing. And the things that are enticing people to come out to shows is decreasing. Ticket prices are going skyrocketing obviously alcohol is ridiculous you go to a big show like a 3,000 person like an arena small arena something like that you know you're paying 12 14 bucks for a beer right you know then you know a lot of those places they make you have certain prices for merch so then it's like all right you have two people go on a show a boyfriend a girlfriend a husband wife whatever the case may be you're like hey you know uh gonna have a beer and a fucking t-shirt you know and yeah, you buy just paid 60 show. bucks plus the ticket. Plus the ticket, that's fucking 100 bucks. You're fucking done. And that's you just know? for you. That's not even the other person in yeah. that couple. Yeah. <laughs> you know, by the time it's over, you went out for a night and you spent fucking $350. Like, there's not a lot of people that can do that. Let alone, at this point, where there's less shows. And now, the bigger concern, and I think that people aren't talking about, 
there's less places to play because a ton of places have closed down. Right, right. So now you got more bands playing less places more frequently. Then what happens? The numbers, the attendance to the shows goes down. You know, promoters are taking the hit. More clubs are taking the hit. And it just starts to kill everything. You know, just one negative thing affects a thousand others and creates more negative things. And it creates a downturn. And right now, you know, there's a lot of that downturn. Right. And every time you think it's kind of like things started kind of going back up. And now this shit happened. How many tours now have already shows have gotten canceled? Yep, yep. Coming from Massachusetts the other day. Darkest Hour on Earth had to cancel the show. Seeing invited. It's a bunch of dudes got COVID. Whatever the fuck happened. And I'm sure a lot of people were looking forward to that. You know, yeah, yeah. And now... It's not going to happen. Or there are bands that, in addition to that, won't play certain venues if you have to be vaccinated to go to or whatever. Right, like that, yeah. Because they don't appreciate being told what to do. Or, or on the flip side, people that, that if the venue won't require it, won't play it as well. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, all this causes a lot of strife, and I understand both points of view. I personally feel like, for me, I don't feel like people should have to provide proof to go into a show. And I understand why it's going on. And I can almost understand, like, okay, if you don't want to provide proof, if you're just wearing a mask and go in, you do what you want to do. Or have that kind of going on, which is still a little bit of a pain in the ass, but it's it's less personally demanding than making people go out and get a shot. Making them. And, like, a lot of people like to equate it to, like, flu shots and shit. But nobody makes you get a flu shot. Nobody tells you, you can't work here if you don't get a flu shot. No one says that. No one says, you, you know, you can't go outside. You can't go in the grocery store if you don't have a flu shot. You can't go into the bar if you don't have a flu shot. You right, know, like, right, right. None of that shit goes on. But this thing is like a whole different animal. And it's a slippery slope between that and like, all right, show me, you know, I need some digital representation of your entire medical record. Is that next? Like, mm-hmm. I want to know everything you've done in the past 10 years. And, you know, it's to me, it's just a slippery slope of things to come. You know what I mean? It's like once you open a door, it's hard to shut it. And now it's been open for quite some time. And they're talking about constantly increasing the demands on people to do things that either provide their livelihood or make them happy. And the music industry is both. It provides a livelihood for several people, people that work at clubs, promoters, people that work in crews and stagehands, obviously musicians, but, you know, booking agents, managers, all these, there's a whole system of people out there on various walks of life, on various levels of the financial food chain that are all attached to this and it's like being fucked with in so many negatively impactful ways that like you know of course it's going to have a terrible effect on the industry of course it's going to go out and that's the thing it's like then the next thing is all right well you can't do anything like anything you can't go outside (laughs) if you go outside we need to see that you've done this 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 and this and, you know, that's just, it pushes people off from doing a lot of things. Right. You know, pushes people off. I heard it was that way. I've never been, but I listened to a podcast. The host is Australian, a family in Australia. And apparently mm-hmm. it's been that way in Australia. You're mm-hmm. not even allowed to be more than X amount of fucking miles from your house. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Australia is also a different kind of place because they've had some really terrible... Australia and New Zealand have had, you know, terrible things happen where they brought in, like, outside animals and destroyed their whole whole ecosystems. So, <laughs> like, I remember going down there and I was like, if you try to take, like, raisins on the plane, they were like, no, no raisins on the plane. We're not going to have any more fuck-ups in here, you know. <laughs> you want to bring anything but oxygen, that's too much. <laughs> so, there's that. You know, I totally understand it, though. Like, if you've had some incidents like they've had... I imagine where, you know, your government's going to be a little bit more reactionary. But, 
you know, here and other places. I don't know. It's hard to see where things are going other than, you know, just trying to find whatever way you can to positively survive the circumstances that are going on. But they say chaos is opportunity. (laughs) (laughs) So this is an opportunity if you can find a way to, you know, survive through it. So I just wanted to circle back to God Forbid for a moment because the band has been in, like, the metal press lately with talks of a possible reunion. Is there any light that you can shed on that situation? I mean, we've talked about it a lot. We've thrown around dates and, and things like that and just how to coordinate it, essentially. But it's, you know, it's not that easy. Right, right. People just think, oh, just well, just get back together. <laughs> Word? <laughs> well, you know what's funny? That's how we do it? You know what's funny? I <laughs> just st- show up? <laughs> I, I started this podcast in 2017. One of my first episodes, episode 7, I think. I had Doc on. It was before Bad Wolves had done anything but release one song. He was mm. here for uh, for Vegas Nerve. Mm. And so we did an interview, and I had asked, and it's funny because you were on the next episode of his show after he was on my show. Mm, and yeah, I had yeah. asked him then about a reunion, and he had mentioned, yeah, I was on a show. A guy mentioned it, it was me. But like I asked him about it then, and he was like, yeah, there's got to be a demand. And it seems yeah. like now there, there, there might be. And it's, what's funny is when I was... I've been to a couple shows at Dingbats since uh, this year, doing podcasts and just going to concerts. And I remember I was... I don't remember what... It might have been... Might have been Kill Devil Hill, but I don't. I'm not certain. But somebody in one of the bands I interviewed had said, with all of like the the stuff going on with Bad Wolves, the singer and stuff, I was like, I bet God forbid it's gonna get back together now because all this crazy. Yeah, I mean, as soon as that, there was literally memes the same day. Like I saw people were hitting me up with crazy stuff. Like I was like, man, you guys are ruthless. <laughs> I mean, it's flattering and it's ruthless at the same time. You know, like I was like, wow, you guys are cold as ice. But uh, you know, it's it's basically just. It was about demand, and I mean, there's definitely, I think, you know, obviously a demand, and, you know, we've talked about it a lot, and other bands that are, you know, that were peers of ours, like Unearthed and stuff like that, and Shadow Soul, like, have all done stuff, and, you know, they talked about doing stuff with us, and, you know, obviously this, there's a connection there, but we just have to figure out how to do do it in our own way that it's going to, you know, not kill us to do. First right. of all, there's a, the geographic aspect of it is insane. Right, right. Um, because well, Doc's in California, you're here. I, I don't know where the other members Byron's are. Byron's in Texas. Oh, geez. And John's in Pennsylvania. So there's that. We're almost. I mean, basically, we're as, as far away from each other geographically in this country, just about as you can get. Wow. So literally, I'm on, I'm on New Jersey. I'm in New Jersey. I am all the way as East Coast as pretty much as you're going to get. Byron is all the way in the south of Texas, which he's basically, that's basically Mexico. <laughs> and then Doc is way on the opposite side of the country. And then John is the closest to me in Pennsylvania, which he's like an hour and a half from here. So that's a significant thing to get over. Also, everybody has responsibilities and different things. Like, you know, obviously, Doc's doing Bad Wolves. I'm doing DOV. I'm managing another band. I'm partnered in a cannabis company. Byron works HVAC on the border of Texas and Mexico. He's got a kid and a wife. John works on robotics and like what are things called that they put oh conveyor belt things or some some kind of shit like that they make different kinds of rollers and conveyor belts and he works on robotics and shit but he's also got a kid got a wife you know what i mean so you know when we do something like that they want their kids to be there which is totally understandable right 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 right, right. <laughs> so you know you have to think about things about scheduling things around that how we're going to work out rehearsal times you know are we going to just these guys are going to get together here and do this then maybe me and john were closer enough to where we can get together and rehearse this amount of time 
then we'll figure out all right how we're going to get together and do all that you know um we discuss you know obviously if we do it it's not going to be one show yeah it's way too much work yeah yeah to just do one show so we're basically talking about that yeah um you know, there's a lot of factors involved and a lot of details involved. But, I mean, we've talked about it. Everybody seems into doing it. It's just, you know, obviously the details of making something like this happen. It's not like when we're in our 20s and it's just don't really have it. Nobody has really any responsibilities or things going on to where it was just easy. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to do this. That's it. Let's do it. <laughs> you know. It's a, it's a lot more difficult because of age and time and responsibility, things like that, and the things that you want to get out of it. You know, there's certain bands we would, we've talked about we would like to have do it. You know, like if we were going to do this, then maybe we should call these bands and have them on the show. You know, um, like to have the kids out there and family members to do yeah. this. And that all takes time. You want to be able to notify people well in advance. And I would love to see you guys do something in Jersey with uh, El Nino and 40 Below Summer. I think, feel like that'd be a fucking awesome lineup. I, I don't know, you know, who's going to be on the show. <laughs> We've talked about a lot of different options. And then, obviously, um, the other thing about it was finding who was going to be the second guitar player in the, in the right, mix. Right, right. Which, um, which so, I was going to ask, too, because I know when, when Doc had Ollie Steele on the X-Man, he had offered yeah, that to and him. And I've talked to Ollie, you know, online a couple times and, well, a few times. and talked about a bunch of different stuff. And he seems like a really cool kid and really mellow and definitely very talented. The thing about that is that would be more of a European thing rather than a here thing. Okay. So then we discussed, you know, like, who would be the options for here? And fortunately, I mean, um, uh, through discussion, I mean, we have a lot of really great options of dudes who said that, you know, they, they could do it or would do it. But... You know, that's what it comes down to. It's just about, like I said, a lot of this shit is just about timing. A little bit about timing and, and getting all these details worked out to where it works out for everybody and nobody's killing themselves to do it. They could just, we could all just have fun doing it you know, now, instead of it being like a super huge chore. I feel like it would be remiss not to ask. I mean, obviously, I guess Dallas is not involved, but you guys had Matt in the band after after Dallas. Is he not available or interested either? Or are you well, guys I mean, I, I think it's just a point where we kind of discussed that. And, you know, also he's in, he's in like Poland or some shit. Oh, geez. Like, yeah, he's got a kid and he's... So it's one of those countries like Poland or Romania or some shit like that. So, you know, he's doing his thing with all of that. And it was just kind of agreed upon that that wasn't going to be. Yeah, yeah. Okay. That wasn't going to be. I was bad. not aware of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was going to be the direction we were going to go in. So we were just going to figure out, like, okay, maybe we'll go with this, you know, go with Ollie Steele if we do something in Europe. And then for here, we have these options. Let's just figure out what that's going to be. But we have this many details to figure out even before getting into that. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Let's deal with all this shit first. And then, obviously, um, like I said, everybody still has life going on right. at the same time. So it's like you just kind of, we're all like, all right, well, we're not going to rush about it. When it's going to happen, it's going to happen. You know, we all want to do it. So that's the most important thing. So when it's meant to happen, it's meant to happen. And then coupling with that was uh, M-Theory Audio re-releasing. They're re-releasing the records on vinyl. So that kind of goes along with it, you know, which is another component. Like, hey, let's, you know, let's figure out what we're going to do and figure out how we can do something along with these records. But, like I said, it's a lot of details. And timing is pretty much everything, so. But, I mean, I think it will happen. It's just a matter of when. <laughs> right, right. So, I mean, you mentioned all of the stuff that you're, you're involved in currently. What is next for you and all that you have going on? That's just kind of how we wrap things up here. What is next for me? I think there's a, a few things next. I mean, the DOV thing, we're going to start writing new music. We've started already writing new music, but I think we'll 
try to finish writing another album, you know, early next year around spring and fit, get that done. I'm also working with another band, uh, sort of managing them called Dissensions from PA. They're releasing a record next year. They just, uh, John Kennedy from uh, Concrete Dream actually just shot a video for them, which will be coming out pretty soon. We have another video coming out for DOV pretty soon. Like, uh, we're deciding on when we're going to release that, so, but we already shot it. It's, you know, it's getting edited down, whatever. So a lot of things are going on. I'm also finding myself going to be going out out west to get more involved with the cannabis business a little bit more just because uh, it's growing and a lot of positive things are happening with that, so... I need to be a little more hands-on and get a little bit more involved with what's going on with the company. So a lot of stuff, and at some point, I think I'm I'm probably going to end up moving out of Jersey just because it's just... I have a ton of family here that I'm sort of, like, detached from, and then the, some that I still talk to, but my, my sort of closest family member that's still here is my brother, but he's now retired. He's, like, obviously he's not retiring. He's like, I'm not retiring. <laughs> so he's talking about, you know, leaving here. And that was kind of, like, one of my last reasons. That I was actually living in Nashville for a while, and I wasn't. And he asked me to come back, which was one of the only reasons I came back to New Jersey. Just all these things kind of, you know, spiraled because of that at that time. But, you know, with him, I feel like, yeah, man, I don't know if I need to be here too much longer. I feel like a lot of the business I'm doing is out there. My mother is, you know, she's getting older. She's out in Arizona. I'd like to be able to be closer to her as she gets older. Right, right. So, you know, grown-up shit is happening. <laughs> but, uh, so I got a lot of a lot of things coming up still. We'll see what goes on in the studio world. I did some, some fill-in studio gigs, different things, some gospel drumming gigs, some different little things. So I don't know. I, I, I always find a way to stay busy and figure out what I'm going to do next. But I already have a bunch of, you know, stuff I'm involved in that's already planned and moving already into next year. So I'm not particularly like, hmm, do I need to find some more shit to do? (laughs) (laughs) Not particularly in that position right now. So I'm kind of like, let me just focus on the five or six things I'm trying to do right now and try to just keep everything maintained and moving forward. And then once some of that has kind of run its course a little bit, I'll figure out what to do next after that, you know. All right. Sounds sounds like you certainly have a lot a lot to deal with. Well, you gotta say you gotta stay busy, man. Especially you know, like you said, it's the the industry is crazy right now. There's so many things that are constantly like shutting down and closing off different avenues. You gotta find other ways to keep yourself occupied and keep yourself you know motivated and creative. Fair enough, man. Well, I just want to thank you for your time and and for meeting up with me today and for being on the show. Absolutely, man. Thanks for having me.
And from the album Pragmatic Sanction, that was Disciples of Verity with Remember the Living. I want to thank Corey for being on the show. If you want to follow Disciples of Verity on social media, you can follow them at Disciples of Verity on Facebook. You can also follow Corey on, uh, looks like on all social media. His handle is at C-O-R for bid. And also don't forget to try and, uh, not try, don't forget to follow God Forbid also to see as they have any updates on this potential reunion. Don't forget also to follow J Bunny's Music Hub on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Don't forget to follow our Patreon. I know it's been a while and, and, uh, so you guys might not be aware of the Patreon or the tiers. So we're going to go over a quick reminder of that. So we've got the $3 official patron tier that supports the podcast and any contests that we happen to hold, you'll be automatically entered into the contest. The $5 tier gets you advanced podcast info and input. You'll be the first to find out about podcast guests as they're booked. All bookings are subject to change. Uh, You'll have the ability to submit questions for the podcast with one being selected for each show. And patrons patrons on this level are also entered into the contest automatically. Uh, Finally, we have the $10 exclusive shows tier uh, where you get patron-exclusive podcast episodes where I will discuss the news of the week in metal and hard rock. You can also interact with the show and join me during these discussions. This level also includes the perks of the lower levels. So hopefully... We'll see some of you contributing to that soon. Uh, as for what's next for the podcast, I know that it has been a bit, but uh, still getting offers and still having requests put out there for new episodes, and I definitely want to keep bringing content to you guys in the new year. You know, I don't tell you guys until it's until it's final, but uh, I have uh, I have a request out for a big name. Uh, who, who's been on the podcast before. I'll, I'll give that hint. It's a previous guest on the show. Uh, they told me to reach back out to them in the new year, see if we can't get something lined up. So hopefully we can make that happen. The feeling that if, if that does, it's going to be a great conversation. Uh, don't forget, guys, also, if you believe in supporting music like I do by buying it, to follow Industry Embers on Facebook and Twitter at Industry Embers. And make sure to tweet or post your music purchases with the hashtag BuyMusic, B-U-Y, or it's BuyMusic, B-Y-E. So I'm going to leave you guys today with a song from God Forbids, uh, what what one could argue, not argue, we discussed it on the show, what one could say is the breakthrough album by God Forbid, Gone Forever. This is the song Better Days. Until next time, guys. Yeah.